You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? I'm very well, thanks, Valerie. I'm just sitting here adjusting my granny blanket on my legs to keep the chill away (laughs) and looking forward to a lovely chat with you. Wonderful. I'm sitting here in my T-shirt <laughs> again. Oh, stop. Why do we do this every time? I know, we time? do this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been up to lately? Well, I've been um, very, very busy chasing Procrusty Pup around the backyard, trying to keep him entertained. I, I, I think I was not quite prepared for the fact that I was taking on a newborn baby with legs. Yes. <laughs> so I, I'm um, constantly supervising, but I have to say it's been quite useful because I sit out in the back in the sun while he does his thing and I take my iPad out there with Evernote and I just write, 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 write. And it's been really good. I've been writing up to sort of two and a half thousand words a day. Wow. Just whilst, yeah, well, you know, I've got to do something. <laughs> so it's kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's it's actually in some ways Procrasty Pop is is proving to be possibly the best anti-procrastination tool I've ever had. Productivity pop. Productivity pop. I'll have to change his name. But um, the other thing I've been doing, and which is very, very exciting, is I have been completing the Mapmaker Chronicles website. Woo! And it's, um, it's live. It will be live as of the release of this podcast. So it's at themapmakerchronicles.com. And if you're interested in having a look at the books and seeing what's going on and maybe pre-ordering a copy, feel free. So that's what I've been doing. What about you, Val? What have you been up to? Well, we have had our own Procrasty pup visiting the office. Uh, some listeners will know that um, we've got a very pet-friendly office and Rambo, my dog, often visits, as do Dougal and Groucho, who are also my pets. But uh, Nicole from our office got a new puppy, a Japanese husky called Bao, and uh, she's been visiting. And when I'm talking puppy, this puppy is freaking giant. Even I was going to say, it looks, <laughs> even on the photo that oh. I saw, he looked, he's, um, she's got beautiful markings, like that sort of line down the middle of her face is so beautiful. Yeah, we'll put a photo in the show notes, but she's gorgeous and she's giant. But apart from that, um, <laughs> I went to uh, Business Chicks Breakfast yesterday where the speaker was Kathy Lett. And that was great because, you know, Kathy Lett, interestingly, is one of the first people I started reading and following way back from when I was a teenager because she wrote Puberty Blues. And, um, you know, more importantly, she wrote Puberty Blues, as I've mentioned before, in the Shire, in the very streets that I grew up in and then I began reading her in Dolly and then she wrote a books and then she went on you know to become a sitcom writer and and a best-selling author um, uh, with, with, with the books being sold all over the world so it was great to see her in action but the thing that was most interesting about it was that 
as we know, she's the master of the one-liner and the pun as in her mm. writing. But in real life, she is like a stand-up comic. That woman has delivery and timing and her jokes down to a fine art. And it's such a skill to be able to, A, stand up and speak in front of a huge room of people, but B, make the entire room roar with laughter, you know, um, line after line after line. So it was a thoroughly enjoyable way to start the day. I know. I was a little bit jealous. I was watching the whole thing unfold on Twitter. You kept putting up photos of yourself with glamorous people and I was thinking, (laughs) I wish I was there. (laughs) Well, I wish you were there too. It was hilarious. But anyway, um, what's happening in the the world of um, writing and blogging and publishing this week? Well, we've got quite a few things to talk about. One of the interesting things that I often get asked and I found a blog post on it is what is the ideal length for a blog post. So I'll put um, this particular person's um, blog post in the show notes. It's from Daily Writing Props and it's how long should your blog post be. But I'm interested to find out from you what you think um, is the ideal length for a blog post. Well, I just think a blog post should be as long as it needs to be to tell the story that you're wanting to tell, particularly um, with the kind of blog that I write, which you know stretches from you know, everything from writing advice to little snippets about my life to all those sorts of things. So my blog posts range in length from three sentences to um, some of the ones that I've written about sort of the business of writing or um, some of the freelance uh, tips that I've given and things like that, they'll range up to 800 to 1,000 words. So I, I think it depends very much on the style of blog post that you're writing and what you're trying to say. One of my most popular posts on my blog is three sentences long. <laughs> it, is, it captures one minute of my life and it, it was one of those posts that just really spoke to people. Um, but the ones, the informational um, posts that I write about, you know, how to be a freelance writer or, you know, how to find corporate work or those kinds of posts um, will be much longer, will be broken up with dot points and will be, you know, shared all over the internet and because they are, you know, useful. I, I do like to write useful posts. I think it's really important, but I think a useful post generally needs to be a little bit longer. But, Definitely. you know, what about you? What do you think? Well, an interesting thing that this post has said is that, and it breaks it down from seven, 75 words, 300 words, 750 words, and so on. And it says that 2,450 words, so long blog post, and it's, it says that the highest ranking articles on Google are off are most often 2,450 words or more. So wow. That's, yeah, that's quite interesting. Okay, I think I've never that, written one that long. Yeah, I think that writing – I'm not sure if I've written one that long, but I've written some pretty long ones. Um, I think that, you know, writing blog posts or the length of blog, blog posts is a little bit like, you know – something else we know that sometimes mm. it can be you know short and sharp and really powerful and other times you need to be long and a little bit more languorous and uh, it, it all boils down to the quality as opposed to the, yeah um, you know I agree I, I think with the I think if you find that your blog posts are getting really long it's it's always worth doing a very thorough edit before you actually post it because you do find um you know when you're in the flow of it sometimes repetition can be a massive problem and I just don't think that that's what you want in your blog post may work for search engines may not work for readers um so I think that it's worth um just you know if you go if you find that your blog post is quite long it's worth just going through and having 
giving it a rigorous edit just to make sure that every word needs to be there. Exactly. Don't just mm. go blah, 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 blah. I'm good at blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so you tweeted an interesting link this week, the rules of writing according to 20 famous authors. Yes. And it's got a whole range of authors in there from Elmore Leonard to Scott Turow to Jonathan Franzen. We won't go through all 20, but did, were there any that stuck out for you that you thought were real, you know, really good pieces of advice? Well, I do love a good bit of writing advice and I love a, a good quote as well. But the one that probably stood out for me actually, and it's because I think I'm right in the middle of, of trying to complete a first draft, mm. was one that um, is from Ernest Hemingway. And I, I often have it in the back of my mind and it's something that I've learned as I've written more novels, like I've, I've now completed, this is my oh, sixth or seventh full-length manuscript that I've done. And it is basically, to sum it up, it is basically to stop when you know what's going to happen next. And I know that sounds kind of silly, but if you've been writing, like I find the maximum that I can really write in a, in a burst and make sense and not lose the plot is about two, maximum two and a half thousand words. And I start to get to the end of that and I can feel myself really, you know, starting to get distracted. And um, what I do is I finish the thought that I'm on and then I start the next one because it means when I come back to the work the next day or whenever I come back to it, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm at. So, for example, yesterday I finished writing a very, very important scene in my current manuscript and it's a big scene and it's a lot of um, oh, a lot of information and, and I, I got to the end of the chapter with that particular scene. So, rather than walking away at the end of the chapter, I started the next two paragraphs of the next chapter so that when I come back today... I know where I am. I yeah. know what I'm doing. I'm not yeah. at the end of the chapter thinking, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? So I did that one time. I, I remember I in, was one of the first manuscripts I ever wrote and I was writing along and this character suddenly appeared and she needed to be there, but I didn't know who she was. Mm. I hadn't actually worked out who she was at that point. And so rather than working through who she was, I walked away and it took three months to come back to work, you know, it took me three months to think about who she might be that would make sense to continue on with this particular story. I mean, too long. <laughs> so I, I don't do that anymore. What about you? Which piece of writing advice spoke to you? Oh, I think I really like the one by Margaret Atwood where she says, you most likely need a thesaurus, a rudimentary grammar book and a grip on reality. I like the grip <laughs> on reality. The, this latter means there's no free lunch. Writing is work. It's also gambling. You don't get a pension plan. Other people can help you a bit, but essentially you're on your own. Nobody is making you do this. You chose it, so don't whine. <laughs> Some really, you know, punchy yeah. advice from Margaret Atwood. And I think yeah. that that is really important. If you choose to, you know, have writing as a career, it's important for you to – and we'll talk about this later in this podcast, actually. We've got a few dot points on this. Um, but it's important for you to make it work. It's important for you to understand that there are certain aspects that are hard and certain aspects that are easy, and we can't just pick the easy parts. No. Yeah, which is probably a good segue, really, into our next link, which is what's your discomfort threshold – for growing your writing business. I thought that this was a really good um, um, post from the Well-Fed Writer blog, mm, <laughs> Income-Boosting well Resources for Commercial Writers. And um, 
basically somebody um, addressed this question, what can I do to stay motivated during those periods when my business building efforts yield nothing? And then the person went on to kind of realize what she was saying and she said I I now realize that question was something a lazy person who gives up easily would ask I'm fascinated by how a lot of how a lot of what you and your book say dovetail with what I'm reading in those books on how millionaires think wow yes it contains wealth principles like if you're willing to do only what's easy, life will be hard. But if you're willing to do what's hard, life will be easy. I guess our comfort zones have to expand to include taking more risks. Now, this is the thing. I'm sure many people ask you for advice on how to, you know, um, on, on, on their own writing business and making a living as a writer and all of that sort of thing. So what are your thoughts on, you know, do you have to do all the hard stuff? Can you just sit there and write? Oh, no. no I wish that you could just sit there and write but no you can't I mean the thing I think that stops a lot of people from starting is this idea of having to put themselves out there they find it very very difficult to pitch ideas they find it really hard to make a phone call Um, they don't want to even like to the point of you know interviewing people I remember I did a I did a an a a, um a workshop several years ago and it was about making a living as a freelance writer and one of the questions that I was asked at that point was do I have to talk to people <laughs> and I was like sorry and she was she she said I, I don't like talking to people on the phone can I do it all by email and I said no no no, you are actually going to have to pick the phone up and call people. The best interviews, you can do interviews by email. Like it's, a, it's, you know, sometimes it's absolutely necessary and sometimes it's a lazy way out. But you will never get the best interview like that because the best interview, it's best interviews come from the questions within the questions. So you yeah. might set up your question list and have 10 what you think are amazing questions and that person will give you an answer that takes your whole questioning onto a different tangent and the tangent is where the story is. And so you really have to, you've got to put yourself out there and what's the worst that can happen? People say no, mm. you know, or they reject your idea and you go, oh, that, that was awful. I mean, okay, I say that now after 20 years of getting used to being rejected and I do have a rhinoceros hide these days about these things, but you've got to grow one. Mm. You know, it's, 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 it's all, it's the only way forward. You've got to put yourself out there and yes, you have to talk to people. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. Yeah. People have asked me if there's one thing I need to do to get my book published what would it be? I mean, presuming you've already written it, of course. Mm. And I say network. And people mm. just go, oh, but I hate networking. And I said, okay, well, don't worry about it. Don't get published then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, when you ask authors how they got their book deal or how they got their agent, they say, oh, I met so-and-so at a literary event or I met them, you know, we connected over Twitter or, yeah. you know, whatever it is. Absolutely yeah. networking is vital yeah. if you want to, you know, and that could be – that's probably your discomfort threshold but you've got to get over it and that's the end of that really. Well, that's the thing too. <laughs> and I, like I, I remember like when I first started um, writing – freak fiction back in the day I used to go to conferences and things like that and I used to go on my own and I hated it because Mm. nobody likes a room full of people they don't know there's nothing worse but once you've done it once probably the next time you go there's that you've met before and suddenly you've got friends and I've met some of like my closest writing friends still to this day I met at that first conference I went to Mm. and I think it's so I think it's really really important to you know, put yourself out there. Have a go. Have a crack. Have a crack. Have a crack. So another good link that I came across this week was why should why you should write love letters. 
What? I, <laughs> I know. It's really? a little bit different. But, you know, I, I, the art of the love letter, there's something a little bit romantic about it. I mean, do you write love letters or do you receive love letters, Alison? Um, no. <laughs> no. Not now. I mean, I have been married for quite a long time. I should probably go and write one today for my husband. Um, but no, I, I don't, um, I'm not a, I used to write love letters when I was, I went overseas and I had a long distance relationship at one stage and I used to write love letters then. I think one of the most romantic letters I ever received though was from a, a guy that I met at a party and he, it was like at a university thing and we were all, we all stayed and he left a note for me the next day. Like it wasn't a it wasn't a thing. I didn't have a one night stand with him or anything. But he <laughs> left a note for me the next day. He was he was moving to Melbourne to be engaged to someone else, yes. and he he left the note for me the next day that I still have. I kept it. I don't even remember his name, but I still have that note because it was one of the most beautiful things that anyone had ever written to me. Wow! And I still have it. It was like three lines. Again, we go we come back to the fact that three lines can be just as important as a thousand words. Um, but yes, I still have that. I don't have the love letters that I received from the boyfriend that I, when I was long distance, but I still have the note from the guy that I can't remember his name. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I have to say, well, I'm, I'm not sure about love letters, but I like receiving, I know like, I know this sounds a bit mean and possibly judgmental, but um, I do like receiving communication early on from potential suitors. Oh, <laughs> and, right. speci- and with- Is that so you can mark their grammar? Well, <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I don't mark their grammar but I I believe that the way a guy communicates with you you know speaks volumes about themselves and about you know whether you're compatible or not I remember you know years ago when there was a guy that I really liked and I got really excited and I was telling a couple of friends and I said and he can spell (laughs) and one of them wrote back saying I thought you'd have higher standards Valerie like surely it would be at least he used a semicolon well you know But, um, yeah, so not so many love letters these days, but I think that um, with, you know, email and technology and you're not sort of picking up the phone these days, I I feel that um, I have this extra layer of judgment, which I probably shouldn't have to, you know, potential suitors like that. No. Anyway, we'll move on to what's our writing book this week? Well, I just thought um, at the moment everyone's talking about the Pro Blogger Conference, so I just yes. thought that I would share the first blogging, the first book on blogging that I ever read. So I had started my blog and I had had it for about four and a half minutes <laughs> and somebody said to me, I've got this great book, I'll send it to you and I read this book and the book of course, is the Pro Blogger book. It's called Pro Blogger, Secrets for Blogging Your Way to a Six-Figure Income. Now, I would just like to point out at this point that I have never blogged my way to a six-figure income, um, mostly though because I am not someone who – I've never started a blog to monetize the blog per se. But what I did find very useful about this book in those very early days were chapters four, eight, and nine. And chapter four is a book about blog writing, and I still have marked – with a little dog-eared corner because I'm like that and I should have a bookmark, I know, but there you go. Um, a, a little section called 10 Steps to Writing a Successful Series on Your Blog and I used 
those 10 steps to, to put together a couple of extremely successful series on my blog, um, which still generate a lot of traffic for me. Um, so that was definitely worth reading. And then chapter eight was blog promotion and marketing, which for a newbie, which I was at the time, was a really, really useful chapter. And chapter nine with the secrets of successful blogs. And one of the most important things about that particular chapter is the definition of success, uh, yes. which, of course, is different for every blogger. Yes. Um, some people are after fame, income and, you know, enormous amounts of traffic and other people are looking for something different. So I think um, it's, as a, as a book for new bloggers, I think it's definitely worth um, having a read of. Have you, ever, have you ever read that one? Yeah, great book. I, th- yeah. I think it's fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to the conference as well because, you know, 450 people, um, 450 bloggers <laughs> in the same place is going to be pretty fun because even though you don't, you haven't met some of them, you kind of know them sometimes very intimately through their blog. Yes. So uh, I think it's going to be an interesting couple of days. But let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I was so excited to interview Lex Marinos, who many people will know is an actor and he is most famous for his role as Bruno in Kingswood Country, if you remember Kingswood Country, and more recently in The Slap, uh, the, the fantastic miniseries that was on um, recently. Recently. But many people don't know that Lex Marinos is also a screenwriter. He actually wrote the miniseries Bodyline, if you remember that. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah. And he's a director and he puts on plays and he teaches. And I really enjoyed reading his memoir, Blood and Circuses. And uh, that's why we got him in for a chat. So let's have a listen to Lex Marinos. I'm here with one of Australia's most recognised and respected actors, Lex Marinos. His career has spanned decades ever since he left his hometown of Wagga to head to the bright lights of Sydney where he became a household name playing Bruno in Kingswood Country. Lex also starred in TV series such as Embassy and more recently The Slap. A regular on the radio, Lex has also directed countless shows has written many episodes of the acclaimed miniseries Bodyline and has now penned a memoir called Blood and Circuses, an Irresponsible Memoir. It's a fascinating read, which is not only an account of Lex's colourful life, but also that of the Australian show business industry for the past few decades. Lex Marinos, thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. Tell us why it's called Blood and Circuses, an Irresponsible Memoir. Uh, well, okay. It's called Blood because it's about uh, it's about my family in the first instance. So I, I just to take a step back, I wanted to make sure that the book was about more things than I mean. I thought you know just talking about me would be boring, and I didn't want to do that. So I wanted to make sure it was about more things. But I wanted to document my family's history in Australia. Not that it's a not that it's any more remarkable uh, migration story than anyone else's, but. But the reality is, and I think particularly at the moment, we tend to forget that unless you're Indigenous, you come from somewhere else, you know, however many generations you may want to go back. So we're all migrants, and that's very much what makes up the tapestry that is Australia. So I think all of those migration stories, we should remind ourselves of them from time to time. As I say, my family's now not remarkable in any way, but it's an interesting story, and I wanted to make sure my kids knew where they'd uh, come from and so they can determine where they're headed. And... Uh, so that's partly what it has to do with the blood, but also I suppose at the time I was writing it, I was also very conscious of my own blood because I had a 
uh, I have leukemia, uh, which is a, a blood disease, so I'm, I'm very conscious of what goes on in my blood. Uh, but also it was about being in the blood, the tradition of being part of a very long tradition of storytellers, of, of actors, performers, artists, whatever, and so that's very much uh, in the blood as well. And the circuses, I guess, um, the circuses really sum up the work, I suppose, but, you know, whether it's been playing Shakespeare at the Opera House or doing a, a show with a community in remote Western Australia, it's all... It's all part of uh, a big circus, and um, so that's where the title came from. It's uh, I want it's subtitled an irresponsible memoir because some of it is irresponsible, but mainly I wanted to uh, to deflate any sense of gravitas. You know, sure, <laughs> um, it didn't. Uh, it, it wasn't feeling as though it was some you know weighty tome. Um, so I think that's uh, that's. Primarily, why the title came about, and it's sort of a play on words. It's sort of from the old Roman thing of if you want to keep people uh, distracted away from that political process, you feed them bread and circuses. <laughs> so it was a corruption of that as well. And so you say that you wanted to tell the story of your family, you know, migrating to Australia. Did you actually know a lot of that story, or did you actually discover things as you had to, I guess, confirm them to in order to write the book? Well, I. I I pretty much knew um, my Greek my Greek heritage from both my father and my mother's father. So my father was from the Peloponnese, uh, and my mother's father from an island called Kassos. And I knew that their families had pretty well been in those places and those regions for uh, for a long time, going back generations. And there wasn't a lot more to discover because the record keeping has always been difficult in Greece because either through natural disaster, earthquakes, floods, or fires, or through war and occupation, a lot of records have been destroyed, but I, I knew the family had been, you know, in that respective island and the region of the companies for uh, generations, and in fact my, my mother's, my father's mother's maiden name was Clovis, which is basically the same spelling as Clovis the Great. So I figure we were also part of the downfall of the eventual downfall of the Roman Empire. So, uh, but it was more, uh, what became more fascinating in a way was um, my maternal grandmother who'd been born here and uh, uh, we, I really only knew that she was sort of vaguely from a Scottish background. And it wasn't until I did an episode of Who Do You Think You Are where they traced it back to find out that yes, it was uh, part of her, her family was uh, Scottish, but the other part had come out here in uh, her great-great-grandfather was a convict who was sent out here in, uh, to Tasmania in 1824. So, uh, and I've subsequently seen his, his lineage go back a few more generations in England. So, once again, it's the blood of the uh, the Anglo, the Angles and the Scots that also mixes with the blood of the Greeks. And, and that in itself is a metaphor, I suppose, for most, what I would consider to be most Australians. You know, most have a an Anglo-Celtic heritage of some kind, but it's also generally mixed with something else. Mm. And, uh, and I personally am fascinated by that, and I think that's what, one of the things that makes us unique as a country. And so why did you decide to write a memoir? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose because Richard Walsh rang me up and, and said it's about time you wrote one, <laughs> and uh, which is somebody I admire and respect and have done for many years, and I didn't feel that I could refuse. It was also something that um, my agent, James Laurie, had also suggested at a certain time, and as I say, it got me at a time where I was a bit vulnerable, and I was uh, 
I was having to come to terms with ideas about mortality. And I thought, well, I do want to leave something for my kids so that at least, um, at least I'll have some explanation of where I was when I wasn't around being a dad. Yeah. So do you, can you give us a bit, for people who are listening, they're interested in perhaps writing their own one mm. or, um, you know, or, or writing a book, can you give us kind of an idea of the timeline of when you kind of decided, uh, yes, I'm going to write it? Did you then sit down, head down, bum up and write it, or did it take a long time? Well, it, it took a long time so far as it was spread over about 14 months, I suppose. Um, and that's because I was working through that period and I didn't, uh, and I didn't, nor did I, I didn't have the time, nor did I have the inclination or necessarily the discipline to get up every morning and get in front of the keyboard at 9am or whatever and write till, could go until I had a thousand words and then I didn't do it that way. Uh, and I wouldn't have done it that way. I, I, once I'd roughed out the structure of where the book was going to go and how it was going to get there, uh, I just broke it down into very small pieces. I suppose that's part of my actor training as well, is to, you know, you don't look at a big part overall, you just think of it as a number of small, small moments that were built up. And I thought of the book in much the same way. So, I, you know, I'd just take the next section that I was going to be working on. I'd just roll it around in my head for a while, you know, and often walking around the backyard, just, uh, just composing it. So that really when I did get a free day where I wanted to write, I could just sit down and just regurgitate what is going on in the mind mm. and then edit from there and then look at the next section that mm. I was going to go on to. So I, I, I did it that way, really. So if you did break it down into sections, which of course makes sense because you know kind of a chunks of your mm. life, how did you then weave it all together? Did you, you know, plot it out with big post-it notes on and move things around or how did you actually bring it all together in the end? Um, well, I, I had all, I knew all of it sort of major areas I wanted to go into, and it was trying to find, I suppose, the metaphors that would help me move from one area to another. So, for me, the book is also about um, about luck, uh, insofar as my father was a gambler, who, you know, that gambling was, had disastrous effects on, on our family, of course. But, but I, I sort of also realised that gambling was very much a metaphor for the sort of career... I wanted to have, but it was very much about, about, you know, having some luck and hopefully being able to capitalise on that luck when it when it came. So it was the pretty much the idea of you dealt a certain set of cards and then it's how you play them that becomes important. So that that was a, a metaphor that, I, that that helped me work my way through it. But I think also the fact that the whole the theme about the blood, Toema, Toema in Greek, which is in the book quite a bit. Mm. Uh, was one that also I wanted to weave through it. So I think, and, and also I, I suppose in a wider context was, was uh, I was fortunate enough to start uh, working professionally in a, around about 1970. So I'd just come through the late 60s at university with the whole cultural uh, revolution that was going on at that time and also then into the early days of the new wave in theatre in Australia and then Double J, which was opening up. So that whole cultural and social change that was happening in Australia was, and I wanted to very much make sure that the, that anything that I wrote about had some wider implication in terms of what was happening in a cultural mm. and social context. So I didn't want to write about shows that were just frivolous, that just was, you know, it was this and who this was, who was in it and whatever. Didn't want to do that. I only wanted to write about shows that had some kind of point about them, relevance about them, mm. to make a, a kind of wider write a thing, write a comment about. So with those kind of 
themes in my own mind. It was, uh, you know, it was a way of trying to connect a way through it. And, and it was very much, if I'd written it in the third person, it would have been very much about, you know, a young man's um, journey from adolescence or childhood adolescence into trying to find out what sort of career mm. he should have or was capable of having. Mm. You do mention a lot of shows and it's because you have been in so many mm. um, over the past few decades. Was it hard to – because acting and performing is so project-based mm. and involves so many different people and so many collaborations, uh, was it hard to – remember everything and put them all in the right spots. I mean, how did you do that? There's just so much to put in. Oh, well, I I guess I was was fortunate enough that insofar as it's a a public career, you know, I knew knew from my CV, which is, Mm -hmm. and it was just then picking out the shows that that I remembered well enough, Uh, because if I didn't remember the show well enough, then I thought, why would I, you know, not disrespecting it at all, because it was obviously valuable at the time and work hard on it. But if it didn't really have much point about it, I didn't really feel the need to mention it. So so it was really only the shows where I thought, oh, well, that is, an example would be doing a play by Kathy Lett at a time when, this was in the mid-'80s, when all of the theatre companies were wanting a female David Williamson. And it struck me as really odd that none of them would again pick up or, or nurture or develop Kathy, who seemed to me to be a perfect fit for what they were looking for. So, in terms, so I guess that was in terms of mentioning the play of hers that I directed, which it was called Wet Dreams, a typical Kathy title. Uh, I mean, it was to make that point that he was a writer that I, you know, in a in a wider sense, I don't think our theatre companies have have encouraged our writers and commissioned them nearly as much as they should. And I thought Kathy was one that slipped through. So, so that was the point of mentioning that. Um, Around about the same time, I did a show, acted in a show in Canberra. Uh, uh, Dario Fo play can't pay, won't pay. It's variously titled, um, translated title. Uh, and I want to talk about that because the other actor in that, or one of the other actors in that, was a wonderful actor called Trevor Kent, who was right at the forefront of that generation that started to get wiped out with HIV with AIDS. And Trevor was such a campaigner, you know, early on for getting artists to make statements about about what was going on. And so I really wanted to write about it for that reason. Mm-hmm. So all, so it, it just became, a, the rule of thumb was, unless the show had something to say, then it had no, it didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't make the cut. Was the writing a chore? Oh, and some days it was a chore, mm-hmm. yeah. Some days I thought, oh, I'm just churning it out now. I really, I'm never going to get to where I want to get. And this is crappy and all that. And, uh, but some days it just breezed through, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of used to that from yeah. from work anyway. But, you know, some days you can be on set or you can be, you know, or in a theatre and, you know, one night the show is fantastic and the next night it's like, you're, you know, you're wading through treacle. You know, it's a, <laughs> and it's the same show, and, you know, you know different is the audience or it's a different day. So I, I was used to that that kind of thing. But I, but I think I also had learned from by about then that that in many ways the most valuable days are the ones where you have to really slog it. Mm. The, the days that come easily are terrific and they're a great gift, but the days that don't, I, I thought I learned more about them those days. Did you have to chuck a lot out or did you end up chucking a lot out? As I went, I chucked it a fair bit. Out and then uh, by the time then I showed it to my wife and she uh, she was um, 
she was good. She got to live a lot of the pomposity. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then I passed it on to Richard, and he was very constructive as well. And uh, so we edited as we went, sort of thing before coming back and doing a fine edit on it. But um, uh, no, I just uh, I often I had a feeling, you know, I'd start a section and I just didn't feel like it was fitting, and I thought, oh, the reason it doesn't feel like it's fitting well is because it doesn't fit. Yeah. So I didn't actually know until I read the book that you wrote many of the episodes of Body Line, which mm. was, you know, huge in my childhood viewing. Um, was that your first flirtation with writing or had you written before? Oh, no, I'd written bits and pieces and sketches and stuff for, uh, for theatre quite a bit. Um, a lot of the shows that I was interested in and, and I was involved in through the 70s were new plays, you know, so... Mm. It was a time when there was a lot of Australian playwriting. The Playwrights Conference in Canberra was really, and I, I discovered that's what I really loved. And I've been well trained from the School of Drama, which was, you know, at the University of New South Wales. So I had a lot of, um, I knew a lot of dramatic theory, and I read a lot of plays, and then starting to be in plays, starting to get a feel for what worked and what didn't work, and and was never backward in coming forward with a suggestion saying, why don't you do this, or why don't we do this, or wouldn't this speech be better like this? So I'd done a bit of that or added in stuff and, you know, always with the approval of the writer and the director because yeah. uh, we've always been a collaborative process. So I'd already dabbled a fair bit in writing and I'd tried a few film scripts that, uh, that had a bit of interest but didn't get up. And then when Bodyline came up, it just seemed a natural extension of what I was Because you're a cricket tragic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually knew, I was one of the few people on the feet who actually knew what Bodyline was. Um, <laughs> And it was wonderful trying to explain it to directors like Carl Schultz. Carl was fantastic. He's Hungarian and escaped from the, you know, when the tanks rolled in in 1956 and went to England. His experience of cricket was that, um, that you know, he, he went to this school and then suddenly he's playing cricket. This is this Hungarian boy and they haven't got a clue what's going on. And uh, they, you know, they hit put the ball in the air and he happened to catch it. And he all he suddenly had all these wonderful new friends who all thought he was fantastic. And then I think the next ball that got hit in the air and he dropped it and they hated him. <laughs> so that's a, that was as much as Carl knew about cricket. So to explain to him the intricacies of, uh, of body line was quite, um, was quite a challenge. But then it was never about cricket, you know. The, yes, the yes. series was always about empire and how empires never last. Mm. And uh, I, you were in Jesus Christ Superstar. No, not at all. No, well, you weren't in Jesus Christ no, Superstar. No, I worked on the, on the oh, setup for it okay. and the backstage on the rigging for it. Okay, yeah. so you were involved in Jesus Christ of Say in that capacity, mm. but you've also written for Bodyline. You've been a director of many different things. Mm. You've been an actor. You've, you've been—they're all such different skills. <laughs> Is it hard? You know, writing a memoir yeah. is completely different to teaching. Completely different. To, so, is it hard to change hats when you are working in this kind of project-based thing? Not really, because really, I, I mean, I guess for me, the 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 overall. Um, or the, the general task is remains the same. The general task is is to tell a story that is engaging, hopefully enlightening, hopefully inspiring. Um, but above all else, it's it's about being able to tell a story in whatever medium and, and with whatever tools you have at hand. And and I find working, you know, I find working in radio, for instance, taught me a lot of skills that later on when I was working in the film and directing film, I thought, hang on. In radio, this would be such a simple solution, mm. you know, to get over this part of the story. Mm. Why don't we just find a film equivalent for that? So I found that 
that really helped me. And also, I was, you know, I think it was a combination of the fact that I was naturally curious anyway. I always wanted to know how things work, how other bits work. Mm. Um, and I was also conscious of the fact that, that I needed to have a diverse set of skills in order to keep being employed. But mm. I, didn't, I didn't, I I was fairly confident that I wasn't good enough in any one area to turn that into a constant career. And I don't think temperamentally I would have wanted that anyway. I never wanted to... I've always wanted to be working in as wide and diverse areas as I can. So I'm really guided less by what my function is uh, rather than what is the project, who else is involved with yeah. it, and you know, what do we want to say with it. And that determines my involvement. When you do write a memoir, you mm. you know, because you write about stuff that's happened many, many, many years ago, and you can risk offending people with your version of your recollection of history as opposed to theirs. How did you navigate that? Did you kind of decide, oh, I'm going to write my version anyway, or did you think I'm going to censor myself and leave things out, or how did you navigate that sensitive area? Uh, that's an excellent question, if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> Only because that was the biggest issue I guess I faced early on was by nature, the, I mean, the whole nature of a memoir is that it's self-serving. So it's about how do you, how do you minimise that. And where I got very challenged on it was early on as I started to write and certainly started to get into my, well, as soon as I get into talking about people outside the meeting, sitting and stuff like that, I can wear that a lot of my contemporaries have passed on. And they were involved. And I thought, this is really difficult because now I am telling my side of the story and they have no right of reply. So I felt really honour-bound to make sure that I thought I represented them fairly. Mm. Uh, so I felt, I felt, and some days it was just like impossible. I remember going through some chapters and I thought, geez, everyone is dead. You know, they're all, they're all passed on. Mm. You know, and I've been aware of them individually dying off over the years, but I hadn't really in my own mind put them all together mm. in one gigantic graveyard. Mm. Um, and so stepping around through the tombstones was, was difficult because I didn't want to, I, I didn't want, if they were alive, I didn't want them to have recourse to say, no, you've misrepresented me. So that, that really, uh, I, I just had to discipline myself about that and make sure. And there was stuff I left out where I thought, uh, that just really showed, you know, and it was vain and it was, and it was shown to be mean or something like that. So I tried to reduce, you know, the amount of bad stuff <laughs> and make me appear like a nicer person than I am. <laughs> I think that it must have been a struggle because I think you've done it so well in this memoir because as I read bits, I go, wow, he didn't need to include that, but that's fantastic that he did. And, you know, and, and there are certain sections like with, you know, your relationship with Wendy Hughes. Yeah. And also there are some sections that I read that I think, wow, I really take my hat off to Lex in terms of how sensitively he handled that. So um, was it a real struggle that you had to come back and rewrite things or did you just kind of... I couldn't rewrite much at all. As I, I mean, it's because of the process I went through, really forming it in my own mind before and doing the editing in my own mind before mm. the bulk of it, before getting on, on the page, it, it minimised it minimised that to an extent. And then there was other stuff where I thought it would just be it would be dishonest not to fess up to certain things uh, and mm. certain feelings. And I thought uh, otherwise the context for it becomes just unrealistic. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, so I just thought it was it was without it being necessarily warts and all, it was certainly some warts. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just felt that that I had to be honest about telling the story, mm. and that without those those elements to it, the story would have been a bit saccharine. <laughs> so, um, moment of truth, you hand in your manuscript mm. to Richard Walsh, who probably sends it to an editor as well, mm. and, and they come back to you with feedback. Mm-hmm. What was the feedback like, and did you have to change much or anything? I, I, no, well, generally it was it was pretty good. Uh, you know, Richard did a lot of the larger bits on, uh, you know, as, as I'm handing chapter by chapter, mm-hmm. he, we'd go through it and discuss it. And, and there wasn't a lot of things. I mean, his big thing was reducing the um, the number of lists because he hates lists. So uh, whenever it started getting to a list of things, oh. he said, no, get rid of that. You know? <laughs> well, and sometimes I'd try to go off in a different style, and which I thought at the time might have been a little bit clever and a little bit you know, useful. But I think Richard was very tactful about saying, mate, that's just a bit wanky. <laughs> um, you know, I think you need to do real sentences and not shorthand and, you know, dot points is not really going to wash at this stage. And I'm thinking, man, and yeah, I guess I did just gloss over that because I was sick when I just put, tried to dress up dot points as though it was some sort of, you know, <laughs> great stream of consciousness. Nah, that didn't work. So, um, so generally that was, that was the, the process. Um, uh, and I have to say it was relatively painless. Mm. What has been the reaction from your peers well, so far, so far it's been very good. But uh, well, I haven't had anyone yet, you know, ring up and say <laughs> you're a bastard. I hate you, and why did you say that about me? Uh, you know, ironically, more of the fan calls I have had have been very supportive and very favourable. And I have had a few saying, "How come I only mentioned once?" And <laughs> say, "Well, write your own book." You know, I found, you know, I couldn't. If I'd written down everyone I've worked with, it would have been an encyclopedia. Yes, and I wouldn't have had any words for anything else. So. Uh, so, uh, no, I, I have to say, touch wood, the reaction so far has been pretty good. But then I, I guess that's what you expect from family and friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you working on now? Are you writing something else or, or what, what's, what are you doing um, now? No, well, I'm working. Apart from, I, of course, you know, promoting the book. <laughs> uh, well, I do, I, I do quite a bit of teaching these days. So I work at a couple of the acting colleges. Um, uh, mainly working on a, on a show called Hip Bones Sticking Out, a, a theatre show, which comes from uh, the Pilbara in Western Australia, around the community of Goburn um, in the Pilbara. And it's a show that uh, with a company called Big Art, Scott Rankin, that I've done a lot of work with over the years, and they're usually um, very long developmental periods, uh, working in the community, developing all kinds of skills within the community. And then from that, uh, Scott devises a show around that community and its story, which has wide implications. It has high views. He makes sure it always has high artistic values, and they're generally placed in, in festivals. And so that's what we're doing. We've done this one. Hip bone sticking out. Hip bone sticking out refers to the little Burrup Peninsula, in, oh. uh, which is, if you look at now on the map, all I can see is a hip bone when I look right. at when I look at a bit of Australia. Mm-hmm. And significant history, you know, in terms of colonisation. In terms of mining, what's going on there? Uh, deaths in custody is, you know, the whole that was the catalyst that in, was in Robin when young John Pat was unfortunately killed back in 1983, was the catalyst for the deaths in the custody Royal Commission. So it brings all of those themes together and uh, in a higher kind of show. And so that's what we're, we're working on. So we'll go back um, 
and rehearse in the Pilbara and we'll play it there to the community, then take it to Perth for a couple of weeks and then on to the Melbourne Festival for a couple of weeks. And then after that, who knows? Now, you have, you are a creative professional. There are a lot of people who are listening to this who, you know, want to explore their creativity. And you kind of imply in the book, or you say it really, and you just said it earlier, that you have had, a, you, you purposely developed a diverse range of skills so that you could last the distance in the industry. Although I'm sure there is some people who would say that you're consummate in many particular areas. But what's your advice to people who are creative professionals? Do you think it's vital for them to have that diversity of skills and try lots of different things? I think it depends entirely on the individual. Uh, I, what I think, the only advice that I've ever given my kids was find something you enjoy doing and then see if you can make a living out of it because we live in a privileged country where you can do that. Most of the world doesn't have, either doesn't have the opportunity to work at all or if they do have that opportunity, rarely have the opportunity to do work in what they enjoy doing. So be aware of where, how privileged we are and then be prepared to work hard. Uh, and certainly in terms of when I'm working with students, all I can say to them is that the morning, you know, acting students, the morning you get up and you don't do your vocal warm-up, remember that all of your opposition are doing it. <laughs> uh, and it's a highly competitive industry. It's an oversupplied industry. So there'll be 20 of you will go along for an audition that only one of you will get. So if you're not doing the work and the other are, it stands to reason that the luck may not come your way, mm. but you need to be prepared for it. And luck is a huge, huge... Uh, fact on on the career. So luck is terrific, but it's like to come back and hand the cards. Mm. The cards you get dealt, it's how you play them from mm. there is going to determine whether you have a career or not. So you've got to be prepared to work hard and and convert the luck when it happens. And do you think you will write another book? Well, there's, other, there's certainly other things I want to write about. Mm. Um, uh, probably more in the non-fiction area. Uh, there's a a collection of letters uh, the, from 19th century theatre practitioners all written to a critic, but uh, it's a collection of a couple of hundred letters in the Mitchell Library in Sydney, oh. uh, written to a, a critic on the Argus in Melbourne, James Smith, who was, he, because of his longevity, uh, had a 50-year career as a, as a critic that spans the, you know, the second uh, half century, 19th century, so from about 1850 to about 1900, which is a golden era of Australian theatre. So it predates the electronic media, but it's a time when Australian individualism identity was starting to come through. Uh, and so there are letters from all sorts of people, from, from actors, from directors, from writers, from producers. All that. You know, there's one from J, the great J.C. Williamson, and it's, uh, it's around the 1890s when the first production of Doll's House is going to be done in Australia, this controversial play by this controversial Norwegian writer, Ibsen, where he has this... Can you believe it? The woman at the end of the play, she, she, she's sick of being treated like a doll and she walks out of this loveless marriage leaving her children. How scandalous. Well, it was scandalous for the time. It was. And so scandalous that Williamson writes to Smith and says, you know, that may be all very well for England and Europe, but do you think Australian audiences are ready for that? Wouldn't it be better if we rewrote the ending and had her come back at the end and <laughs> say to the children, oh, but I can't leave you? So it's that, it's that kind of collection of letters. And so I would like to write something about that because it's such good primary material mm. that I'd like to make it, even if it's just online, I'd like to make it available to people who are studying Australian theatre and want to know more about it. So that's one I'd like to do. And 
then it occurs to me also that uh, the, 19, uh, the 2016 will be the 50th anniversary of the School of Drama, which is where I went, which started in 1966 as an autonomous school within the University of New South Wales. I guess now uh, media and film or whatever it's been retitled. Um, but, uh, and I'm conscious of the fact that, that the School of Drama has turned out as being very modest in terms of promoting itself, and it's made a contribution to the development of Australian theatre by producing students who are who can either teach theatre, who have a higher appreciation of theatre, and and many of them have gone on to professional careers. And certainly when I went through, uh, there's Gabriella Lev, who now runs a theatre company in Jerusalem, Arnie Nemi, who's been a freelance director for the same period I've been acting, um, Alex Buzo was there, the writer, Rex Cranform, the director, went through. Um, shortly after me, James Waits, the critic, went through, um, Robert Love, who runs Riverside Theatres, and previously the Sydney Theatre Companies. So I've produced a lot of people that have also worked in the in the industry as well. And so I, I wouldn't mind um, doing something along the lines that acknowledge that kind of contribution. Mm. And um, out of all of the things that you do do, whether it's directing or writing or performing, what do you find the most personally rewarding? What it, would you like doing the most? Um, well, I always... In- I always enjoy the job I'm on at the time. I, I always think that's going to be the one that I'm really going to get it together on <laughs> and, and, you know, and do well. Um, and it's always the one, I suppose, coming up, the one I, I look towards as being you know, something fantastic. I, I, I mean, one of the hard things about the book, I suppose, was that I tend not to be a natural nostalgic. I, I don't look back a lot. Um, oh. I'm... I'm I don't look forward that much either, but I, you know, I really try and just stay in, in the moment a bit. Mm. Um, it's nice to have work on the horizon, but you know, even now we're talking about a play for next year, and that seems so unrealistic to me. But, mm. You know, I mean, I know we have to plan and start to develop and talk about it and things, but it just for next year that just seems so far away. To me. <laughs> um, so, I so I, I think every job I've been fortunate enough to do, I've, I've had some satisfaction from. I've tried to get satisfaction. I try to make sure I've always had a good time, a pleasurable time mm. while I'm working, which is not, I mean, I'm, I'm, I love to take the work very seriously, but I don't want to take myself too seriously. Yeah. So I think that's a, a good combination for me. And I, and I look back and it's hard to single out jobs and I, I look back and the things I'm most pleased about are, are just working for that mm. period of time. I, the, you know, there's a great speech from Nina at the end of Chekhov's play The Seagull where you know, she comes back after having been away and having had a, you know, a child out of wedlock, and, and you know, she's a, she was an aspiring actress, and now she is uh, an actress, and, and she's come back to her uh, teenage sweetheart, um, and explains to him that, that you know, early on I thought it was all about money and it was all about glamour and being, and I didn't know, I acted terribly, I didn't know what to do with my hands, I didn't know what to do, and I realised none of that's important. That what's important is is that it's my calling and it's important that I endure. You know, and the endurance is the thing that's important. When I think about that speech, I think, well, that's... I now understand that speech because the endurance is what has been valuable to me. It's been the journey that's been valuable and none of the destinations have have really been where I wanted to stop. I've been happy to visit there and and get back on for the next part of the journey. So it's... It it is about that for me. and, and, And I like... That being so, I didn't ever want to be uh, employed by a company or work in an office or anything like that. I really only ever wanted to 
have the freedom to freelance, to have the freedom to say no if I didn't want to do yeah. a certain job. And, and just moving around across different media and different roles and stuff like that, it's been, that's what I've learned too. It's, it's about being able to endure. Mm. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Lex. My pleasure. So that was Lex. Did you enjoy the interview, Al? I did indeed. I think it's always fascinating to find out how, how different people work and he's had such an interesting career. Who oh, knew? so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so let's move on to what's our web pick this week. Well, speaking of screenwriting and interesting careers, um, I was having a discussion with a, a friend of mine on the weekend who is an animation specialist. He actually specialises in 3D animation special effects. So he does the explosions and the other bits and pieces in 3D animation, like it's a fairly wow. specialist area. But he um, he and I were having a discussion with my oldest son, who's very interested in animations. He makes them with a fantastic little program called My Create, which we use on the iPad, and we he basically makes little Lego movies. It's a, it's a great thing. If you've got kids, have a look at it. But we were talking about writing scripts for them because he just sort of makes them up as he goes along. And this friend of ours was saying that they put us onto this terrific web com celtx.com and it's essentially a storyboarding um storyboarding software script writing and storyboarding you can break it down and for students it's free it's a fairly basic program just to get a script started and how to go but if you are actually more advanced and you're actually trying to get a production together you can do schedules budgets cast and crew reports the whole bit wow. within this program um but of course you know we're not quite at that point. We don't need that for our Lego animations. So, um, but yeah, like I just thought if you do have, um, if you are interested in script writing, maybe have a look at it from a storyboarding perspective. Great. Hmm. Um, now, I'm working writer's tip is actually something that both of us have been asked quite a bit <sighs> in the last couple of weeks, interestingly. So, everyone's got this question on their lips. What is it, Al? Can I really make a living as a writer? Hmm. And the answer to that is... Yes, but it's not for everyone <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Um, I actually wrote, um, I, I've actually just recently, you know, retweeted this link that I wrote so, um, in 2012 was the last time I was really thinking about this. Um, and it's it, the title of the blog post is, Can You Make a Living as a Freelance Writer? And my short answer is yes, but it's not for everyone. And then I have a 10-point long answer if you would like to have a look at the blog post. What are the, highlight, the highlights of those points? Well, Number one, people who make a living from freelance writing work really, really hard. I think it's one of those things that, you know, again, we, we come back to this business about you have to do the hard yards and I would love to just sit here and knock features off all the time, but um, it doesn't actually work that way. Um, I'm, I generally find that I'm working on several things at once. Some of them are short form, some of them are long form, like books or whatever. Um, I do corporate work. D diversification is the key. You yeah. really need to be looking. You can't just write one thing anymore, and we've talked about that before. Um, and the other thing is you have to hustle. If you don't want to put yourself out there, you're going to find it very, very hard to make a living as a freelancer. You have to be constantly pitching. You have to be thinking all the time. You've got to have your radar out at all times to think, is that going to work? Who would it work for? And you also need to stay on top of your market. So you've got to read magazines. 
and mm. publications, online publications, and talk to people and just see what's going on out there. So, yes, that was, that's a little bit of a precy of some of my 10 points. Yeah, great um, And we'll put the link in the show notes. But, like, what's your answer? Have you got a 10-point answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite a 10-point answer. No, I didn't get quite that Oh, you know me. I love a list. I can't help <laughs> exactly. myself. Exactly. You love useful posts. I do. Um, well, interestingly, the people who have asked me most recently have – well, not naturally, not been writers, so they're in other jobs and they want to know if they transition, can they make a living as a writer? And some of them don't necessarily want to become freelance writers for magazines. Some of them want to write books, you yeah. know, novels. Oh, so right. my answer is, uh, I think my answer is more helpful. Well, the short answer is yes, you can. But I think my answer is more helpful to these people if I change it to, can I make a, really make a living as a writer this year? And my answer, if I switch this year, and my answer to that is that if you do become a freelance feature writer for magazines, the short answer is yes, you can. I know countless people who've done our courses, who've done our courses in magazine and newspaper writing, who are now making full-time freelance incomes um, within their first year. But if your question is can you, that you want to become a novelist and earn a living as a novelist in your first year? Well, the short answer is not no. likely because it's <laughs> going to take you that long to write the novel. <laughs> and, you know, even if you got a book deal tomorrow, mm. you, you, it's, it's a very long process to go through the publishing process and the edits and the, you know, um, publicity and all of that and the launch. So you've got to either earn your income um, through another means maybe as writing other things that aren't books in that first year and you've got to be a bit more realistic because it simply takes longer to get a novel published and just to to reap the rewards from it so well, that's right and you also need to be realistic about what those rewards are going to be mm. like chances are that even if you do get your novel up this year and you get your advance and you do all that stuff that's not going to be a living wage for you mm. like being realistic mm. um unless you know like i'm not saying that that's the case for everyone but that you, you you may have the breakout novel and that's fantastic but it, it, generally speaking, people are taking four and five books to actually really break through in the market for people to recognise names and things like that. It's a long-term, it is a long-term thing. Yeah, and I, my advice is that always make sure you're working on your plan B. And if you don't have to rely on your plan B, lucky you, yep. but I always have it, especially if you are writing fiction and, yes. you know, and, and books. But if you want to be a freelance feature writer, I, I definitely think you can make a living from it. Well, yes, but you have to work hard. Yes, you have to work hard. Yeah, it's not just really hard. the door, obviously. Yeah. Wonderful. So She's lucky we got that out of the way. Well, you know, I don't know. Everyone's interested in, in doing it this these days. I can't believe both you and I have been asked this question by several people over the last couple of weeks. So there's yeah. something in the air. Yes. Uh, this, this brings us towards the end of our podcast. So what are you going to be up to until we next speak? Well, I'm hoping that with any luck, I might be typing the end on my first draft of the Mapmaker Chronicles. In the next week or so, maybe be exciting. Little, yeah, so I'm 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 really looking forward to getting to the end of the story. But I'm also kind of sad. Like part of me, I think, is slowing down because I don't really want to. I don't really want it to end. Mm. I don't really want to leave them. I'm a little bit in love with all of these people now, and um, yeah. So part of you know, I'm excited that the end is approaching, but I'm also a little bit like, oh, 
what am I going to do when I'm not thinking about them all day? Every Another day? trilogy. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully. Let's see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. What about you? They're still young. There's many adventures for them to be <laughs> there's, had. There's, there's time, I know. Exactly. There's more world to discover. Yes. And you? What are you going to be doing? I am heading to Melbourne this afternoon to um, speak to about 600 people on how to raise their profile. So that should be fun and lots of uh, writers um, coming to that. So um, um, it's always very exciting to speak to people who are really motivated and who aren't afraid of networking. And will you do a will you do a nice little ten point useful post on that for us at some point on just, how to raise profile? Just for you, Al. Oh, thank you. That would be so great. I'll be, I, I will tweet it everywhere. <laughs> And for those of you who are interested in um, some tips on freelance writing, Al actually has a great ebook. I do. I do have a great ebook. It's called Get Paid to Write: The Secrets of Freelance Writing Success, and it goes through a lot of the things that um, that we talk about and, and a whole lot more. I, I I do. I went out and I spoke to editors about what they want from freelance writers and um, I think that that particular chapter is worth the purchase price alone. <laughs> and where can we we purchase it? You can purchase the book at alisontate.com. Great. And if you are interested in a course the, at, at the writerscentre.com.au, uh, the magazine and newspaper writing course is great if you want to become a freelance writer. But in the meantime, um, we've come to the end of our podcast. So thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to see the show notes, it's at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or send us an email at podcast at writerscentre.com. Dot com.au and we would love some of your reviews or um, on iTunes. Thank you to those of you who've already written some reviews. We really appreciate it. Really, you know, great feedback because we want to make sure that this podcast is as useful to you as possible. Yes. Thank you also. There's to those that word you, again. Yes. <laughs> Thank you also to those of you who've, who have been sharing the podcast on social media. Um, we're really grateful. So until next time, see you then. Bye. <laughs>